well, actor, comedian, star of The Last Man Standing, and of course, the voice of Buzz Lightyear from the Toy Story trilogies, Tim Allen, if you're not sure yet. Um, Tim Allen knows what it's like to be stuck in setback. Tim Allen's dad, if you're not aware, was killed by a drunk driver when he was 11 years old. They were driving back from a football game, and Tim was the only one in the family that was not in the car. Now, his mother and his siblings survived, but he was destroyed. He said, it hit me so hard, I didn't see it coming, and it turned my world upside down. I wanted answers immediately from God. Why would he let this happen? After the guilt and the anger subsided that Tim says he kept looking for someone, for someone to help him deal with these feelings, but nobody was there not in his family, or in his neighborhood, or at his school. He was totally alone. Now, Tim got in the bad crowd at school, and he started using and selling drugs. He ended up actually in prison for over two years in Minnesota, of all places. And when he got out, comedy saved him, he says, sort of. He was free from prison, yes, but the fame and the money and the laughter from the hit show Home Improvement were not enough to free him from the pain. He continued to drink until his marriage was broken and ended, and he ended up in a treatment center. See, some people, they get stuck in setback by believing if they can get far from the pain, then they'll be free from the pain. How about you? Have you been so stuck in setback that you really can't see a way out? Or have you been facing a setback that's so challenging you really actually doubt that God could bring you through it? Like Leah said, we've been talking about this idea of setback, this journey from setback to comeback that we see in Exodus that's really a metaphor for our whole lives. And setback is simply when life throws you a curve and you don't know where you didn't expect it coming, and you end up in a place that you never thought you'd be, and you fear you'll never leave. But setback is more than just a situation. Setback, as we see through the Bible, whether it's called exodus or exile, setback is really a metaphor of how God wants to work in his people. And last week, we talked about this fact that God does things in in Exodus, or God does things in setback that he can't do any other time. When we're in setback, we are opened up and we are laid bare, and some of those things are ugly, and sometimes we want to run from it. But if we want to get through them faster, if we want to get through them better, then we will actually need to run towards it, embrace it with brave faith. We have to name that loss. We have to embrace those shadows that that come out, and then we have to ask God to fully work in us. But we think sometimes that when we do that, that that's a formula. That if I just do these three things, then I'll get through setback and then life will be great again. In fact, the sooner the better, the faster I want it. Fast, easy, and quick. There's no quick fix for setback. But there is a way out. We see it so so poignantly through the story that we're going to look at today. 
And if you're in a setback right now, and if you feel stuck, if you feel like, this is one way that, one image I got, if you feel stuck in setback, it's sort of like having your iPod on repeat one, except the song that endlessly cycles over and over is one you didn't even like in the first place, and you can't stop it, you can't shut it off, it's just going and going and going. And if you feel a little bit like that, there's hope for you. We see it in this story called Moses and the Burning Bush. Maybe you've heard of it. It's in Exodus chapter 3. So if you have your Bible, we're just going to start in verse 1. We're not going to get very far at the moment. Because verse 1 says that Moses was tending his flock, the flock of Jethro actually, not his. Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness. And he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, last week we found out that Moses had been in Egypt and fled to this place called Midian, a strange place, a place he hadn't been before. He was actually a stranger in that place, but he was content to settle there, it says at the end of chapter 2. He agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah Moses to Moses in marriage. And Zipporah and Moses had a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I've become a stranger in a strange land, or I've become a foreigner in a foreign land. I have, I'm content to be here, but this isn't my home. Not only that, we read in Genesis that when God's people were sent there, they were put in this place called Goshen, this, this kind of separate camp, if you will, from the rest of the beauty of Egypt because the people of God were shepherds. And it says in Genesis 46 that, and, and in a few other places that, that all shepherds were detestable to the Egyptians. So think about this, because Moses spends the first 40 years of his life as a prince of Egypt. In fact, a famous son, probably, likely, a famous son of Pharaoh's daughter. He has the finest education available to him in the world and virtually lives a life without limits. He has access to anything. And then from the way we read it in the story, through one tragic mistake, he loses it all. He loses his family. He loses his status, and he loses his future. And now he's doing a job that he was brought up to detest. Remember the first job I had, I was a cleaner. I was a janitor for my dad's little rental building. And I had to sweep the floors and mop the floors. And and my dad said, this is good work. This is hard work. This is work you should be proud of. Till someone asked me about it. Then I got to see what I really felt about it. Have you ever had to do a job that you really didn't want anyone to know about? Or been in a place where you couldn't get your bearings? It was just too strange. This is where Moses is, and we find out a little later in the story that Moses is 80 years old. So this isn't too far from that point, 
And we'd think that's close to the end of our life. We know from the story that Moses lives 120 years. So this is the middle part of his life that he's basically displaced. And all we get is a verse, a couple of verses, to talk about how Moses was in setback. I would say stuck in setback. See, I think the longer that we're stuck in setback or the longer we sit in setback, setback, the easier it is to feel like a failure or maybe just feel forgotten. Now, grief counselors and psychologists explain that there are five common stages to grieving loss. The first two are denial and anger. We talked about these last week when we talked about kind of our response to anger or our initial response to setback. You know, denial is, no, no, it's not really happening, or denial in a positive way is our body goes into shock because we can't really handle what we're facing. And so that's sometimes a good thing, but some people can just keep denying and denying and denying. Anger is our emotional response to loss. God actually gives it to us to give us the energy to work through stuff, but sometimes we get stuck there. So then, then we come to bargaining, and bargaining is just our search for the quick fix. If you've ever been in a relationship and you broke up with someone and they said to you, I'll do anything to get you back, they're bargaining. But bargaining happens in church too. Bargaining happens when people come to a worship gathering and they they hope that just one service or just one prayer or just one meeting will, will fix the problem. And these aren't linear. Sometimes we go from bargaining back to anger. Or back to denial. But ultimately, almost every one of us gets to this place of stage four, depression. See, depression is where we get stuck. Depression is where we believe this this one big limiting lie. That life will never be good again. Jerry Sitzer is this guy who lost three family members in one tragic car crash. And he writes this book called A Grace Disguised, and he shares how people get stuck in the stage of grieving. He says it like this. He says, we live life as though it's a motion picture, like a movie. But loss turns life from a movie to a snapshot. And we just keep looking at this photo and every vivid detail of it over and over. And we get stuck because the movement stops and everything freezes. And we find ourselves staring at the photos of our life, trying to remember the movie it used to be. But we also know that it can never be again. We get stuck when we think that this place we're in is as good as it's going to get. I think the technical term is we surrender to our limiting beliefs. See, when Moses wanders to the far side of the desert, it seems like he's surrendered to his limiting beliefs because all he sees is limited possibilities. The, uh, the other name for si- the mountain of God is Sinai, but they don't use that word here. They use Horeb. 
Horeb now could have been the mountain ranges or it could have just been another name because they like to name things more than one way. But Horeb actually means dry place. So get this, he's got his flock of sheep, remember, that are not very smart, not very clean, and, and need to always eat. And so he's looking for food and water in a dry place. I'd say those are limited possibilities. Doing a job that he was taught to hate. But not only does he see limited possibilities, I think he sees a limited person. When God does come to him and start a conversation with him, he says, well, who am I to go and do this? Now, whether that's literal or figurative, I think Moses has forgotten who he is. And it is so easy to slide into forgetting who we are when we face setback after setback. We start to believe these limiting lies that, well, other people have said I can't do that. I can't do that. I've obviously failed at it, so therefore, this must be true. Moses sees a limited person. He sees only his mistakes, and he sees the memories of what others have said about him, and they're replaying in his mind. And finally, I think Moses sees limited power. When God responds to Moses' question of who he is, he asks, well, who are you, God? What, a, what am I going to say to the people when they ask who this God is? Basically, I might, Moses might know the one true God, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, but he doesn't have a personal relationship with this God, at least not here, at least not yet. He sees a limited possibility and a limited person and a limited power. Now, fortunately for us, Jesus isn't a grief counselor or a psychologist. He's the God of the universe. And he provides a way out for us. But it's important for us to stop and think about the beliefs that we have that limit us because of something we did, or something we said, or what someone called us. What are those snapshots that you're holding on to in your life that make you think, I don't think the future that I thought was ever going to be again? See, when you and I are so far out in this desert this dry place, this setback, we think that God has forgotten about us and we've forgotten who we are. But that is just not true. God has not forgotten us. God hasn't forgotten Moses. Look now as we read through these verses at what Moses sees and what God wants us to see. It says Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness, and there he came to the dry place, Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of God met him and appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. And Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up. 
And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, then then God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. I imagine Moses closed his eyes. And the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt, and I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about them because of their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the, from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jacobites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. See, when Moses can't see, because of all these limiting beliefs, God shows him a new perspective. God shows him a new way to see. First, God shows him a supernatural power. Think about this bush. Think about the fact that Moses probably felt used up, burned up, washed up, forgotten. And now he sees a bush that's burning but not burning up. Something that was naturally impossible becomes supernaturally possible. Where are you looking in your life and things and going, this is naturally impossible. There's no way that, because God shows us in the bush, there's always a way. There's always a way if it's in his purposes. Moses stops. It says, it says in the more literal translation, translation that he turned aside to look at this thing. It's not just that he looked at it, it's that he stopped and he went over, giving this sense that he was going one way and he pauses, he changes his orientation and he goes in a new path. If insanity is doing something over and over and over and expecting different results, being stuck in setback is doing the same thing over and over and over and expecting that to get us out. And here he He shows him a new path through this strange sight. And then he shows him his power, and Moses realizes his power by taking off his shoes, a sign of respect, a sign of reverence, a sign of humility. Moses responds to this first sign that God shows him of supernatural power. But he doesn't stop there. He also shows him this sincere love that we see in these these verses. First of all, of God just calling out to Moses by name in setback. Because when we feel forgotten, and when we don't remember who we are in setback, we just assume everybody else is forgotten too. And God calls out to you, Moses, Moses, I am the God 
of your fathers, which means he knows Moses' past and he knows his mistakes and he calls out to him anyway. He shows him sincere love. He, he, he tells him that he knows of this situation in Egypt that Moses probably thinks about, that he tried at one point to have a part in, to be a part of the rescue. He just did it in his own way. He went out ahead of God. He did it by force instead of by faith. And now God is saying, hey, I know about the situation. I promise to do something about this situation. You don't need to keep going over and over and over it. And then when Moses is just really unsure of this God, he gives him Moses. He gives Moses his most personal and powerful name. The name that that Hebrews really won't even write, let alone say. This name Yahweh, in our Bible it just says the Lord, and it's all capitalized or capital L, small O-R-D, but it is this name that means I will be who I will be. I am who I am. I, I will be anything you need and everything you need. And when Moses isn't sure who he is, God says, I will be with you. See, it's one thing to think that we have new power in a situation. And it's one thing to think that we're loved in the situation. I had two people tell me that this week. In just horrid situations, I've tried to, in the most humble and soft way, say, God knows and God loves you. And God has all the power to do something about it. And both responses have been, uh, yeah, but that really, I don't see how that could change this. Sometimes that's just where we are because that's not enough. But God gives Moses more than that. He shows him this sacred future. In the next, in the last verses of nine and ten here, and then moving on in the passage, it talks about this promised land that God would not only free His people from their oppression, from their setback, but that He would bring them to a place that's abundant in good. That's what the milk and honey references. See, we get in a place like Egypt, which means narrow place because it's desert except for this one huge river. It's the only source of life. The, basically, all economy is fueled by this river. And we just then think that that must be what abundance is, is filling that small space. But God is this God of abundance that owns everything that's, that's widespread. And we need to open our eyes to see in the way that God would want us to see. But sometimes when we can't do that, we need to close our eyes. To see God's abundance. And Moses does that. He hides his face. And then he starts to see. The supernatural power. And the sincere love. And this sacred future. This sacred future where the people will actually leave Egypt. As people. Not as slaves. They will be given goods. Silver. Gold. Clothing. Food. Livestock, not sheep, to go. To, to just in a small way make up for some of the years and years and years of work 
without being hated. And, and God doesn't stop there. He paints this picture of this goodness, really trying to say that, that life could be good again. See, that final stage of grieving, at least according to the grief counselors and the psychologists, is the stage of acceptance. And it's really being able to see or choose to see that life can be good again, even though what was lost is still gone. But see, in God's economy and in God's vision of this, he's not only saying that life can be good again, he's saying, Moses, I see you as good. I will be with you. I want to use you. The guy who feels washed up, used up, burned up, and stuck and forgotten on the far side of a desert. God says, I want to use you. When we don't know who we are, I will be who I will be says, I will be with you. That's a lot of I will be's. But it means, I think, it means that we will find our most fullest, truest identity in Christ, the one who says, I am. And in our worship of this God, that's where we'll find our truest identity. Now, there's just this one little last piece that there's not a good transition to, but the Hebrew writers are super brilliant in this idea of how they use numbers. Yes, they're concrete and physical actual numbers, but they also have a spiritual significance to them. Like the number one is kind of original or prime importance, and the number six means incomplete, and the number seven means completion. Well, the number three means we're not there yet, but we can see it. So Jesus was in the ground for three days. He's not quite there yet, but he can see the new reality. Well, 40 is this number that means something is dying and something is being born. Noah was in the ark and it rained for 40 days and 40 nights because the earth was dying, but the earth was being born. This new creation, this this life would continue. Uh, A woman carries a baby for 40 weeks. A single life is dying, but a new life is being born. Moses is in Egypt as a prince for 40 years. But the prince is dying and the shepherd is being born. And the shepherd life is dying right here because Moses as the shepherd leader, Moses as the the one who would see God face to face and talk to him and who would lead a people who act very much like sheep. They complain and they want to go back and they they can't think properly. Maybe all of this setback is never punishment, but is all preparation. Something in Moses has to die, but something else is being born. So when we go into not grief counselor acceptance, but God's divine acceptance, I would say it's like choosing to see that God's perspective brings God's future, that that becomes possible. That choosing to see God's perspective 
brings the possibility of God's future. And when you accept God's way of seeing, you bring those possibilities into your present. Maybe this story by this guy named Will Brown will help. There's this artist who's very well known, and he asks a friend to come to his studio and to see his latest paintings. And he came at the scheduled time, and he knew it was only going to be about an hour because this guy was really busy, and he was warmly greeted by the attendant. And the attendant took his coat and his keys and his phone and his boots because it had been snowing and gives him, offers him a pair of slippers and brings him to this room and says, please have a seat. You know, the artist person will be with you in a few minutes. And she shuts the door and locks it. And he sits in the dark for what seems like forever was actually about 15 minutes. And finally, the artist opens the door and warmly greets this guy and walks him through the studio, saying completely nothing about the delay or the dark room. And he begins showing this guy two of the most amazing paintings that he's ever done. And the, the guy is very, I mean, he's grateful, he, he is enthusiastic, and he's appreciative of all the different things that he sees in his photos, but... Frankly, he's a little confused and kind of annoyed about being locked in the dark room for, fifth, for a fourth of the time that he's going to be with this guy. And as he's leaving, the artist hands him his coat and says, you know, I suppose you're wondering why I put you in that dark room for so long. Like, you probably thought it was a little odd. And he's like, yeah, I actually did think it was odd and a little annoying. And, and he said, well, see, I knew that if you came to my studio from the sun and the snow and the streets, that all the glare of the day would have still been in your eyes. You wouldn't have been able to see all the colors in these photos, in these works of arts. Not just all the colors, but all the details. And I'd worked so hard on them. I just, I wanted to, I wanted you to experience it in its fullness and appreciate it with me for all the work because I'm giving you one of these. And you couldn't if you weren't locked in the dark room to let your eyes adjust. See, I was preparing you to view these amazing pieces. God's setbacks, in God's mind, our setbacks are always preparation, never punishment. And someone that's really personally experienced that, and I'm just pleased to have her share, is Leah. Well, it's fun to be up here and get to share a little bit about who I am and um, and a little bit of my story and not have to be behind a guitar. Um, I wish I could tell you more of my story, but I'm going to start about four years ago um, when I graduated seminary. And I, I went through a process in seminary of trying to figure out what exactly it was that I wanted to do with my degree. Um, but I really was called to do what I'm doing now lead worship at a church, um, to be able to use the skills that God has given me, the gifts and my passion for art and creativity and all that. Um, and he provided a job for me. Um, I met a pastor when I was in seminary who started, um, he actually 
moved to Mankato from Iowa and was a senior pastor of a small church about the size of, of Restoration. Um, he was he had actually grown the church um, from the time he started to the time I started from about 100 to 150. So when I got there, there were 150, and they had just purchased a building, and they were going to go through a renovation project, and I was going to get to help design and um, uh, create the, what the sanctuary space and kind of the entrance space and the coffee area, and it was just all super exciting to, for the first time in my life, really live on my own, have a full-time job, and um, and be away from my family, but close enough to my family where I could come home if I needed to, things like that. Um, and it just came into this job with a lot of energy, a lot of excitement, and, um, you know, to be a part of a growing church is, is always an exciting thing, to join a new congregation in a new area and just get to, um, you know, uh, discover a new city and things like that. Uh, it was all great. Um, a couple months into it, um, my boss kind of flipped a switch in his life. I don't know what happened to him. Um, but he started really just being, like, um, angry at me all the time. Uh, he would kind of became verbally abusive, told me I wasn't good enough. Um, sorry. He told me that what I was doing, I could never do. I was not good enough to be doing it and that I should start looking for new jobs. Um, and but would put on this front in front of the whole congregation and just say that, you know, we are best friends and, and all these things. He would tell me um, to go to visit the contractors at the at the building and, and flirt with them and, and flaunt my body at them. And, um, and based around, it was only like three months into my job when this happened. And it was around Christmas time, and they sat me down for a, like, quarterly review sort of process, and they... Um, he said, uh, we give you three months to go find another job. Um, I didn't know what I was doing wrong. I, I mean, he told me all the things I was doing wrong, but it was like, mm, that prayer you said wasn't, wasn't really good enough. That, that Hillsong song didn't really sound like Hillsong when we didn't have a drummer or a electric guitar player in the church. And there were just all these little nitpicky things that I couldn't really put my, wrap my head around and I couldn't figure out what I was really doing wrong because he wouldn't express really, or, or he wouldn't help me, he wouldn't guide me, he'd just tell me I was doing it wrong. Um, during this time I had a friend come down and visit me from the cities and, and she sat me down and she's like, hey, what's going on? I know something's not right. And I told her everything and she's like, well, you know, maybe, you know, this, this is the time for you to move on. And I felt like a failure. I, I felt like, you know, this this was what I thought I was called to do. It's where my gifts are. It's what um, I feel God has created me to do. And um, But I wanted nothing to do with it. I, I was like, I'm done. I don't, I have no desire to go to church. I have no desire to even make music. I, I moved home and um, put my guitar in my closet. Didn't pick it up for months. But she told me, she's like, well, you know, just think about it. I, I have this friend who's looking for a part-time um, part-time worship director up in the cities. His name's Rob. <laughs> and uh, just, just think about it. And I was like, no, no, no. I, I just, I need a break. I need to find something else. And when I left, I told God, I give you six months. You know, it's never really good to tell God what to do. <laughs> so I told him, I give you six months. 
um, for me to find a new job. I don't care what it's in, but it just something full-time. Um, I moved back up here, moved in with my sister and her husband in their basement, and went back to my part-time retail job. And um, a, a couple months in, uh, I went on a trip to Connecticut. I lived in Connecticut for two summers during college, so I had a lot of really, really good friends there. One of them was getting married. And uh, I actually, one of those people also happens to be my high school youth pastor from here. So they're out there now, him and his family. And I, I stayed with them while I was there. And I don't know his wife very well. Um, I, I have met her a handful of times. Um, and when I was there, I was actually in the interview process at a company called Logos Bible Software. Um, they have great, um, great resources, and I was really excited to be a part of them, part of their team. And um, I was going to go on as a copywriter and editor and use some of the other skills that I had gained and learned during seminary. Um, I had my final interview via Skype while I was out there, and it went great. I, I, I knew I was going to get the job. I was like, I'm in. This is, this is awesome. This is amazing. And I sat down with my youth pastor's wife one afternoon while I was there, and she was like, tell me about this job. Tell me about this interview process. Like, how's it been going? And I told her all about it. I told her I was excited. I told her that I, I, I felt really good about it, and I thought they were going to offer it to me. And she looks at me, and she goes, uh, that's not what you're supposed to be doing. And I was just like, this woman who barely knows me knows me better than I know myself right now. She knows my skills and my gifts and my call better than I knew. And we continued talking for a while. And because she's from here, she has a lot of connections. Um, she said, oh, there's a job at Faith Covenant open, um, full-time worship director. Um, you should get in touch with them. I also know this guy who's looking for a part-time thing. Maybe you just want a part-time thing. He's, you know, he's has a church plant. His name's Rob. And <laughs> I was like, oh, that's funny. This other person mentioned Rob as well. Um, so I came back and and I started I started considering. I was offered the job at Logos. I turned them down. And uh, when I when I got back, I, I applied for um, a couple different positions. And uh, during that process, I got an email from a friend who's like, "Hey, I heard you are out of a job, and I have this guy who's a part-time worship director. His name's Rob." And I'm like, "Okay, I guess I should talk to this Rob guy." Um, and I, I think it was like that day I sent my my uh, resume in, and the next day Rob and I talked and on the phone, and I was like, "This is this is where I'm supposed to be." And um, the interview process was healing for me in a lot of ways, um, and just coming here has been healing. And it happens. I, I realized I think on my first day of work that it was six months to the day from my end date of my other job, and I I I just I'm so humbled that. God can take my stupid little I test you on this and actually make it happen. Um, I don't I don't suggest doing it. <laughs> it's not necessarily a good thing to do. But I've really learned that um, through this process and through this huge setback and and time in my life where I, I really felt lost. And I was lucky that it was only a short period of time. I know a lot of people go through longer periods, but I really learned that my confidence um, comes in, in comes from God in what I do, and I don't need to listen to my boss. I don't need to listen to the person who tells me I'm not good enough, because I know I am good enough. And um, I hope that you guys can uh, learn that in whatever situation you're in, that, that God is a powerful and mighty God who um, who walks with us 
and loves us and gives us the confidence to be who we are. Whatever setback you're in, know that your story is not the whole story. That when Leah felt forgotten, God says, oh, I know you and I am with you. I am with you. The God of the universe, the God who brings Jesus back from the dead, the God who opens the eyes of the blind, who causes the lame to walk and, and heals people on the spot. This is the God that is with us, that longs to have this love relationship with us, to lead us and guide us, and to remind us that we're always his, that we'll find our greatest fulfillment in him and in our worship of him. Where are you stuck? Where are you seeing only limits? Well, you close your eyes so you can see God's power and his love in his future. He's not finished with you. And he's not finished with us. He will do marvelous things. It is a time of preparation, whatever you're in. I hope you hear that. He loves us. You pray with me. God, it's fun to hear or fun to read, I guess, the story about Tim Allen finding not only sobriety, but healing in his daughter and more importantly in his faith, but to hear it from someone that we know and someone that we care about. To see it. To see the story of how you love us even when sometimes we might not love ourselves. And that you have this great plan to bring us into your future. God, I pray that we would see it, that we would, that we would act on it, that we would name those things that, that set us back and that, those limiting beliefs that cause us not to see your good or see your power or see your future. And we would start to listen, yeah, this week to the future that you might be calling us to. In Jesus' name, amen.